Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yeah. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey everyone, John Wertheim here. It is this week's Sports Illustrated slash Tennis Channel Tennis Podcast Beyond the Baseline. We have two guests this week. We're going to talk with Tony Godzik, who is Roger Federer's longtime agent, but also, and, and more important for these purposes, he is really the mastermind behind the Labor Cup, the event last weekend that uh, was a, um, a considerable success, the team competition. Europe against the rest of the world, Federer and Nadal playing doubles together, um, big social media presence. It's in Prague this year and now moving on to Chicago. So we talked to Tony about this competition, where it fits into the tennis landscape, the origin story, some uh, some Roger Federer talk as well. Good conversation with Tony. And then um, in keeping with this theme of tennis innovation, um, I wrote a, I would say fairly scathing. Would you agree with that, Jamie? I don't um, have my mic on. The... Uh, <laughs> I would say a, um, a a charged column on my. Uh, it was a mildly hot take. A mild, a mildly hot take. Oh, I hate the term hot take. But it was a lukewarm take. It was a. Um, it was fully I, back. I hate on court coaching. I think it's uh, cheap and cynical and really disrupts one of the core virtues of tennis. But it was being used at the U.S. Open, and it is a polarizing issue. And Stacy Alistair of the USTA came on to make the case for. Encore coaching. What are we calling it? Mid-match coaching? Coaching during competition. And um, no, I mean, I think that, uh, A, I applaud Stacy for, for coming on. I think it was a civil conversation. This was not a debate show. Um, and I think we sort of left it at agreeing to disagree. But I thought she made it some interesting points. And clearly this is being driven uh, by an interest to engage fans, which is always uh, a good thing or at least a good priority. We can agree or disagree about how effective it is in doing that. But, uh, but I actually really, I really enjoyed talking to Stacy and I appreciated her taking the time knowing, uh, where I stood on this issue. And I thought, um, I thought she made some, some compelling points. So tennis innovation is our theme for this week's podcast. First, Tony Godzik talking labor cup, and then Stacy Alistair of the USTA talking, um, about some innovations there 
most notably mid-match coaching. So uh, a little different this week, but um, I think these are two good conversations. Let's start with Tony Gatsik. Hey, welcome back. You're uh, you're back in uh, you're back in Northeast Ohio. You're at, back you're in Northeast Prague. Ohio before I go to Asia on Monday. Correct. Good. Uh, <laughs> but let's talk. I, I I said in the introduction, you uh, you're, what's your title? You're CEO of uh, Teammate. You're, you're head of President Teammate. President and CEO of President. Teammate and Chairman and Co-founder of the Labor Cup. It is the second uh, of your titles that I want to talk about today. Okay. Um, it's, this is a this is a victory lap. Um, I, I don't think I'm breaking objectivity when I say congrats. That uh, that that first Laver Cup got rave reviews. The players probably come in for the first round of applause. But uh, o- overall, certainly from a perception standpoint, uh, big big success. What uh, what were your impressions? Look, we had a vision three years ago. Um, Roger really wanted to do something to honor Rod Laver and uh, and and those you know, his peers that sacrificed so much. And we had a lot of wonderful ideas and we had a great team and we put it together. And, uh, but ultimately it was the players and the captains that really, they had the platform and, and, and they killed it. And it was, uh, it was great. We're all really excited. Um, we think it's great for the sport. Um, we, yeah, we're over the moon. I think it really it exceeded our expectations and, uh, you know, we're, look for, we're looking forward already to 2018 in Chicago. What do you see? I mean, it's, I, I think it's sort of natural to instinctively see this uh, vis-a-vis the Davis Cup. One's a, you know, the, the weekend-long international competition versus the weekend-long international competition. But what, what do you see as your, what's your competition? I mean, what, what, what did you see this in the tennis landscape? Our competition is other sports. Uh, you know, it's not tennis. I mean, we did not set out in any way, shape, or form to compete with the Davis Cup. That wasn't our goal. It is not our goal today. It won't be our goal tomorrow. They're completely different projects. Uh, we just wanted to create something that could help innovate. And if the end result is that it pushes Davis Cup a little bit to innovate, great. But that's not why we did this. Um, we're competing, and when I say we, I mean the family of tennis, is competing against so many other sports that are bigger, they have a lot more money, and they really do things uh, at a much larger scale. And I'm talking about you know, football, soccer, uh, basketball, the NFL. And so we just saw an opportunity to create something that was different, that I think the sport wanted. Uh, we created a, a very fast competition in the sense that it is only three days. Uh, we created a shortened format because the attention span of the consumer on TV and in the digital space is not as, as great and long as it used to be. And um, so far, so good. It worked. But we, we definitely are not in competition with the Davis Cup. It's, they're, they're completely different animals. What, um, was, was there a, a moment that stands out? Was there a moment of reckoning last weekend when you said, you know what, we were really on to something? I mean, what, what are sort of your top line, I don't want to say memories, but uh, what, what are your sort of top line impressions? There's so many of them. I, you know, I think the one that stands out the most for me is when it started to see the crowd, like 17,000 plus people in there supporting a new event. They didn't know really what to expect. Um, and seeing that first was incredible. The players, the fact that the players were able to gel as teams. I mean, we did go out of our way to, you know, separate the teams to make sure that there was some bonding right away. Uh, you know, so, so that actually worked. Um, you know, we, we created, you know, this was the, the, the tagline that we went with from the beginning was 
uh, rivals 51 weeks a year, teammates one weekend a year. And we saw that sort of happen right away. I mean, the optics of seeing these rivals, and I don't just mean Roger and Rafa. I mean, obviously, those pictures and the optics of those two playing doubles together, cheering for one another were great. But I love the moments when the other players, uh, you know, were coming to the bench to, to coach the players. I mean, that's what we dreamed of, but we didn't know it was going to happen. Uh, so that was very exciting. And then, look, we did this in the end for Rod Laver. And to see him there and to see him enjoy it, he had no – I think we blew him away. I don't think he really, when we explained this to him two and a half years ago, um, what we wanted to do, I don't think in his wildest dreams, um, and in our wildest dreams, to be honest, did we think it would be um, so exciting. But there were so many moments. Uh, you, know, I was, you know, I was lucky because I was behind the scenes too, and I – got a chance to just be a fly on the wall, not in the locker rooms or in the team room, but just interacting in the hallway and, and, and you know, just seeing both teams gel and, and, and develop lifelong friendships that maybe you don't get on tour because they are rivals all the time. So there were so many moments, and luckily we captured a lot of them um, for the fans at home to see. Did you, did you do anything? Yeah, I mean, obviously some of the relational, Roger and Rafa, you know, enough said, but you know, Jack Sock and Nick Kyrgios have a friendship, but did you do anything to sort of facilitate? I don't know if there were team dinners over the summer. Was there anything that you did to sort of accelerate this bonding that you talked about? You know, we, we, we tried. Um, we started to talk it up, but because it was new, the players really didn't know what to expect, so we didn't have any team dinners before Prague. Um, I think, you know, on the, on the rest of the world team, John Isner was, was great. I'd walk by him in the hall at the U.S. Open, and he'd be like, Labor Cup, you know, and I think he started to get, you know, the guys all, all going. Um, but I think most of that bonding and the gelling happened in Prague. You know, uh, Captain Borg and Captain Macro organized team dinners, two of them, and there were no, you know, agents allowed to go to them or, or, or friends. It was just the teams and in some cases a spouse or a girlfriend. Um, but they did it all themselves. And I, you know, I think now one of the things that will be a, a direct result of last weekend in Prague will be relationships and friendships and, um, you know, constant uh, badgering each other and talking to each other on, on tour, which is what we really, you know, we're hoping for. And it seems to happen. I mean, I've, I've just loved listening and, and, and watching uh, and reading all the social media, you know, posts that these players have done um, since uh, it ended, and it's, it's really exciting for the future. I, I wrote this week, I thought you threaded the needle between, it, you know, it, it wasn't your classic exhibition, they didn't give the ball boys the racket, I mean, it, it had enough heft and gravitas, but also there weren't ranking points, it wasn't a sanctioned event, you, you don't see you know, mid-match tweeting. Um, how much of that was sort of organic and how much of that was orchestrated? The, the notion that, you know, we're supposed to have fun, we're supposed to have a big social media presence, but let's not cheapen this thing by the usual sort of exhibition yucks where everyone has a good time, but there's no pretense of this being a serious competition. Look, you know the word exhibition, it bothers me. <laughs> because, yeah, I know. Uh, well, you I, said that like I, a year it, ago. It Don't call it an exhibition. What is that? It was it wasn't an exhibition, uh, but look, you know these players, John. You're out on tour. You you know the sport of tennis really well. You write about it. You live in it. You commentate on it. You know you can't tell these players what to do, you know. So this whole notion that anything was orchestrated um, is is laughable. But what we did do is create the platform for them to 
run way, run one way or another with it. And they, they ran the right way. Uh, you know, clearly we made things easy for the players. We made a locker room and a team room that were next to one another. And we made everything was close. Um, so, you know, we made this bench area, which, uh, which was obviously a very novel idea, which allowed them if they wanted to run into the team room real quick and come back. I mean, we created things so it, it was easy. But, you know, I've heard notions uh, from people that some of these matches were staged and it, it's laughable. It's actually insulting. But what I will say is where I think our team got it really, really right was this format. You know, the point system, one point on Friday, two that, points exactly. on Saturday. And because and, we didn't know what was going to happen, but we knew that we could not have Sunday be a dead rubber day. And we, we needed some sort of strategy. And that, you know, you asked me before what was one of the things that stood out. Um, it was the discussion of strategy because there was no history um, in this event to decide, like, what was the yeah, best right, day right. To, to challenge. Ta- and tactically, just, yeah, exactly. Yeah, just listening to, to the captains and, and the players. I mean, it was funny because I would ask, uh, you know, I told Roger before it started, I said, I am not going to be your agent for the next week. I'm promoting this event, you know, so, you know, see you later. And I didn't see him very much, but I did ask him after his team dinner on, uh, on Thursday night, what, what's the lineup? And he said, I can't tell you. I said, well, why not? He said, because I can't. You, you'll know when the organizers know and we let you know, but I'm not going to tell you. And I thought that, you know, poignantly exemplified how serious these guys were taking it because there was a strategy to who you put when and when do you react and all that stuff. And that was the fun part um, and was really exci- exciting. I want to ask you about uh, Roger's relationship with Rod Laver, which you, you mentioned that was really the driving force behind that. I mean, Roger's spoken about this to, to some degree, but what what do you think this relationship is all about? I mean, Rod, Roger obviously has ties to Australia, and we all remember the Australian Open in, in 2009, but this really, and we, we had Rod on the podcast a few weeks ago, and he, he talked about it as well. What, what do you think is the engine behind this relationship between these two guys that, uh, you know, are almost a half century apart in age, but seem to have a real kinship? Well, tennis is the connection, obviously, and Roger's always had uh, Australian influences in his life. Uh, Peter Carter was his original, one of his original coaches who unfortunately passed away. Um, Tony Roach was a, a longtime coach of Rogers, and Roger was, Rogers always thirsty for knowledge as it relates to the sport of tennis and what others used to do. And so he would always, you know, quiz uh, Tony Roach and always ask him for stories of of the past. He obviously developed a relationship with Rod over the years with the Australian Open and you know, the famous scene of him crying on his shoulder in the trophy ceremony in Australia. And Roger just loves the sport so much. And he, you know, he obviously recognizes that a lot of people did a lot of work so that he could do what he and his contemporaries do today. And so uh, they always see each other. I think you know, they've had this, uh, they share a sponsor in Rolex. And so this all started, uh, you know, the stories. It's been said a few times is we there was an event that Rolex uh, organized in Shanghai at the Shanghai Rolex Masters and it was called Meet the Legends or something and I we went and it was late and we were driving back to the hotel and he was being a clown and turning the seat heater on in the car waking me up and he then said to me do you know I make more money in a one night EXO than Rod Laver made in his entire career and he won 200 titles Tony and I said I didn't know that but he said why don't why don't you 
come up with a way where we can do something together uh, with Rod, like an endorsement deal or whatever it might be. And that sort of coincided a few months later with us having a brainstorming session with my partners about what we could create a teammate, an asset that could be long-lasting and give back to the sport. And one of my partners is really big into the golf space and he said what about the Ryder Cup and I said well you know we could create something but there is the Davis Cup but you know Roger wants to do something for Rod Labor why don't we call it the Labor Cup and then we got Roger on the phone and we started brainstorming a little bit about format and things like that and that was the genesis and the birth of this whole thing but Roger has always wanted to honor and respect those that came before him and obviously Rod you know having won two calendar year grand slams I mean think about it he won two calendar year Grand Slam bookmark years, what, 62 and 69, and then he didn't play in between. I was going to say, you and, know how many majors he played in between this. Right. None, right? Or is it well, none? I think, well, I think he had four, four but, yeah. pre, but whatever. I mean, this guy, the meatiest years of his career, and you look at uh, you look at that Grand Slam grid, and he basically went five years without playing a Grand Slam match. Right. And can you imagine me telling Roger or today, hey, do you mind taking, like, yeah. Uh, four years off or four plus years off of Grand Slams just so you can usher in the professional game for a bunch of kids that aren't born yet um, so that they can make three and a half million dollars at the U.S. Open in, in 2017. I mean, it, it would be, uh, you know, no shot. Thank you very much, Tony. And yet that's what not only Rod Laver, but his, you know, the other players in the Barnstormers did. And so Roger definitely wanted to do something to honor, you know, these players and uh there's that deep connection i think also i mean let's be realistic roger got pretty darn close to winning the career grand slam a few times and if it wasn't for rafa nadal um he might have done it so i think also roger and he says you you know rod's the greatest tennis player in history and i think he means it because he knows that you know this man achieved something that he wasn't able to achieve but got certainly very close hey what do you mean roger won the career grand slam uh, the career Grand Slam, excuse me, the calendar oh, year. Oh, 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 Grand oh, 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 I see what you're saying. Um, yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, I was going to say, we, we, don't want, we, don't want Rod, we don't want Roger's agent shortchanging his career Grand Slam. No, um, no I wouldn't do that. The, I would uh, do that. <laughs> so what, um, are we, are we going to see the same captains next year? Yes, we, uh, we did a deal with the captains last year for three-year um, captainships. So uh, we will see them through 2019, which is great. Uh, our whole feeling, as you know, we start in Europe and then we'll go to a rest of the world city, which is Chicago, and then we'll go back to Europe in 2019. And then we'll take the Olympic year off, which is obviously one of our, um, you know, our decisions because it, it's too much tennis. You know, with the Olympics, the Davis Cup, the tour, to do it in Olympic year would, I think, be irresponsible of us. So we just figured it would be a great way to incorporate the captains, not just for one year, but do three-year terms and then we have that year off to get the next captains in and get them ready for uh, 2021 that uh that summer of 2020 is going to be rough with uh with tokyo um let me let me ask you a uh we sometimes people people write in with uh with with, with questions and a lot of these I'm, I'm always surprised how many of them are sort of young, young kids who are interested in in careers and it turns into career day how did you? Mm-hmm. Uh, you I, I think I think you and I first met when you were representing a uh, a, a promising young female, Lindsay Ann Davenport, um, who did okay for herself, which was like, you know, in the, in the '90s when you and I were in our 20s. But um, how'd you, how'd you get into this game? What, what would what would you tell kids who say, uh, "Boy, I want to be a tennis agent one day"? I got very lucky. I uh, when I was in in 
in college, uh, I was probably heading towards doing what a lot of kids do in college, maybe go through corporate recruiting and then head down. I'm from New York City originally, so maybe head back to Wall Street. And I really wanted to work uh, in sports, and I got hooked up with someone who um, ran the TV division at IMG, a guy named Barry Frank, and I was able to convince him to hire me a, a, as an intern. And uh, during my second internship, I got a uh, phone call at 7.30 at night. I was in the copy room making copies of uh, the video log project that I was working on, and it was someone in the Cleveland office asking if I could go with Monica Sellis uh, for the weekend uh, to an event in Mawa, New Jersey, that was owned by uh, John Corp. He was the promoter. And I thought it was a friend of mine pranking me on the phone, but it wasn't. And uh, so that was my experience uh, in the summer of 92, uh, going with Monica to this exhibition, and then after you know she won this exhibition, she went on to win the U.S. Open that year. And then I asked her, could you not see if Mark McCormick would agree to give me a job? And in March of '93, uh, I was hired uh, to move out to Cleveland, Ohio, and, and work for uh, for IMG, and then travel around with Monica Sellis. But tragically, she got stabbed April of '93. Uh, and I was, you know, I was worried, uh, you know, for her and I didn't know if I'd still have a job, but IMG said, don't worry, she'll come back and play one day. And, and, uh, so I moved out to Cleveland, Ohio. I graduated on a Saturday, drove to Cleveland on Sunday and, um, and went to work for uh, IMG on Monday in 93. And, uh, Monica did come back, but during that period of time, I got to know a bunch of other players and, um, and then, yeah, I did. I was very fortunate to hook up with uh, with Lindsay Davenport in the mid '90s, and uh, and she, I mean, she was incredible. One of the smartest tennis players I've ever met. Probably hits. I think you could probably say she hits the cleanest tennis ball, or one of them, uh, you know, in history. And um, so I got very fortunate to manage a great group of. That's of, a of very difficult and, client. That's that's a prima donna, though. Nah, she wasn't. I mean, she was all professional, and uh, tennis was, you you know, you know her well, working with her. She is, she's all business, and she's a real student of the game and did great. What do you, uh, what do you tell kids now who are, uh, you know, in in, in their early 20s, and I I imagine in some ways the skill set, the the core skills are still the same, and in some ways I imagine it's it's very different than it was 20 years ago. What do you, what do you tell kids today who want to, uh, who want to work for you? Well, I, you know, I, I look for kids that are outgoing, that are gregarious, that uh, know how to sell, that know how to, to speak, that can write. Uh, you know, a lot of people say, oh, should I go and study sports marketing? Should that be my major? And I say, no, you should go study whatever you're interested in in college. Uh, look, ultimately, in the end of the day, it comes down, I think, to people skills and sales. Uh, I do, because tennis is international and we're involved with some other sports as well, I do think having a grasp of, of the world um, is, is really important, understanding geography, understanding and maybe potentially speaking a bunch of languages. That's a tool that is just uh, incredible. So I would, I would encourage young students, go abroad. The world is big. It's not just about America. It's about an entire planet where sport is a global language. And so if you can understand different cultures and sports and not to sell and be nice to people and be creative, I think that's, uh, that's really important. Last question. How would Roger Federer fare as a tennis agent? He'd be the, better than I am. The skill set you're that. describing sounds like uh, you have appreciation of the world and you have pragmatic sense and you speak a lot of languages. It sounds like you're, uh, I'm, I'm thinking Roger Federer yeah. might. Uh, he, he's hired. 
He's hired. Done. As a matter of fact, uh, I'll tell him when he retires, he can have my job. Now, I mean, look, he, the, he's a remarkable person. I think that's one of the things he, what he loved about Rod Laver and loves about him is he's a, he's a humble champion. I think Roger is a humble champion. Um, certainly he's confident, but I guess you and I would be confident too if we had 19 Grand Slams and a bunch of other records and six ATP World Tour final titles and, and all that stuff. So, um, you know, he, uh, he's a tremendous human being, and I think we're all fortunate uh, to, I'm certainly, you know, I think there are a lot of agents out there that think they gave birth to their clients. I can promise you I'm not one of them. I'm, uh, I'm very lucky to, uh, to have started work with Roger back in 2005, and it's been a, a wild ride um, with so many incredible moments. But I think last weekend was one of the highlights for me is seeing a project that he helped create and see it come to life and come to life in such a great way and I can't thank the players and, and, and the captains and the entire team with the USTA Tennis Australia and Steve Zacks, our whole team. It, it was so much fun and we look forward to this journey in the future. Big success in Prague. On to Chicago. Um, thanks. That was great. That was great. Perfect. Appreciate thank that. Thank you. Um, we will uh, we'll see you down the road. All right, that was Tony Godsick. Good talking about him. Labor Cup, uh, big success. Still a, a hot topic on social media. Again, I think you know you've uh, you've hit on something when people have strong opinions about what they would like to see. How are we going to do this even better next time? Um, you do not want to be irrelevant. That certainly uh, wasn't the case here. And when people are writing to me, why isn't Labor Cup men and women? Wouldn't that even out the balance. Why don't they uh, do the doubles first when, when people have this level of uh, concern and suggestion? I think that's a good sign. So uh, Laver Cup, uh, that, that covers Laver Cup. Some interesting Roger Federer talk as well. And now let's um, now let's talk with Stacey Allister. Stacey, again, works as a head of pro tennis for the USTA, and she um, is one of the figures behind the mid-match coaching innovation that, um, that some people, such as uh, my, myself, are opposed to and other people are fond of and um, I was happy that we were able to sort of talk this out and uh, again I'm not sure either of us convinced each other of, of the merits or lack of merits but I thought this was a nice civil conversation at a time when we should probably have more nice civil conversations um, so uh, thanks to Stacy in advance but here she is thanks for doing this I appreciate this yeah no problem I, I was telling someone I said it's something we should do more often not just in tennis but in uh, humanity People can disagree and still uh, have a civil discussion. Um, yeah, does, okay. Doesn't always have to be hot takes. Uh, but I wanted to. Uh, we want to talk on court coaching. I'm not a fan, you know. Okay. Um, I know that. But uh, no, I. It, I. I don't know if you wrote. You read what I wrote, but I. I thought that sort of pairing it with the serve clock, especially, minimized the fact that like it's a big deal, and it's not just a clock enforcing a rule. This is really changing something. But I wanted to kind of. I wanted to give you the floor and sort of pre present the opposite side and uh, sure. make the case. And maybe we, we don't have to debate. We can just, just talk about it. Sure. Um, so you referenced on-court coaching. Obviously, f for the U.S. Open in 2017, the test was off-court coaching, which is uh, very different um, than, than the on-court coaching. So maybe just... Well, Mid-match mid coaching. Uh, but yeah, we well, look, during the test... Um, with the off-court, players uh, could engage with their coach when they were on the same side. So that happened throughout throughout the match. Um, so it wasn't just wasn't just mid-match, just for clarity. But, sure. but I guess maybe for you, it's 
It's more you don't think there should be any coaching in tennis uh, versus uh, what was done on the what is done on the WTA and now what we tested at the 2017 U.S. Open. Right, but I'm, right. but I'm open to uh, no. I mean, I don't. I mean, before we sort of talk about process, I mean, what what what, what do you see as the virtues to uh, yeah, whatever the sort of semantics are. During play, during the course of a match, sure. traditionally there hadn't been coaching, and, and now there does seem to be. I mean, I don't know. Make 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 the case. What 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 do you see as the virtues? Well, I think at the end of the day, those of us that are in leadership positions in tennis, our responsibility um, to the fans, to engage fans, to recruit fans, and ultimately for the USDA uh, is to grow the sport. Um, on-court coaching or off-court coaching test that uh, we did in 2017. It's a long process, and it really originated from our commercial partners uh, at ESPN and other broadcasters. Uh, it, for the USTA, this process started in 2015, before I even arrived, where ESPN uh, sat with the leadership, with Gordon, uh, and his team to say, look, these are a number of innovations, enhancements, improvements to the competition of flow, a number of things that we believe you, the USTA, and the U.S. Open as a product need to review in order to keep your sport relevant, to engage more fans, for us to improve the broadcast, and ultimately for the sport of tennis to be relevant in this very, very competitive sport and entertainment landscape. So we have to start with the overarching rationale as to the why, why we change. And our sport, whether I like it, you like it, honestly is irrelevant. Um, what is relevant is what do we need to do to grow our sport and keep it relevant? And there are a number of macro changes to a number of different sports that have been that have been game changers, you know, would be the three-point shot in basketball. Sure, sure. In my early days, I'm dating myself. <clears throat> it was 1991. I can vividly remember it. I was reading a, a brand strategy magazine, and there was an article with David Stern, and he has been my compass for my entire career. It's all about the fans. It's not necessarily about the rules. And we need to do whatever we need to do in basketball so that we can keep basketball relevant for our fans. So I think whether it's the coaching, whether it's the serve clock, uh, whether it's electronic line calling, uh, everything starts with the fans and how we make tennis exciting and interesting, short and long term. So that's the overarching rationale. Did, do you think this helps? Do you think the fans like this? I think it's been my experience that uh, an innovation like electronic line calling, I put that in the home run space. Uh, what do you mean? Coaching, oh, 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 you mean as in, yeah, yeah, and un unqualified you know, every, force of good. We all, yeah, exactly. Right, right. Yeah, you know, you know, I think coaching, for some, they enjoy it. Um, we haven't, on, haven't, haven't really had it on the Grand Slam stage yet. So to have its true understanding, uh, whether fans 
uh, like it or or not. But for, it's been on the WTA for over 10 years. I think that is a telling uh, stat unto itself. Um, they We hear from the broadcasters that there are moments that it's compelling. It's compelling when Sven Gronefeld goes out there, Darren Cahill goes out there and talks to their athletes. It was all from... From the genesis, when we started at the WTA, again, it started with ESPN in 20, 2005, before I'd even started with the WTA. Uh, it was a genesis. How do we make our sport more accessible to fans? How do we give them that behind-the-scenes access? You're not in venue. In venue, you're, you, there's a barrier. And so the, the rationale from ESPN and the producers, the directors, and the talent was, let's give the fan who's watching at home that inside and having that dialogue and then also what it did is it created storylines for the commentators to be able to say you know Darren on that last changeover told Simona to do this then the commentators go back and forth on whether it worked or it didn't work so um, you know I think we we know the debate I respect everyone's opinion uh, it is a, a you know very polarizing uh, innovation or change to the game. I think, uh, you know, at the moment, it's a test, and we're, you know, working through it. Um, and that's part of this. It's a consensus-building overall process. I mean, I I talked to one board member who said, you know, we barely had any knowledge of this. They sort of tried to pair it with the the, the clock and the bathroom breaks, and next thing you know, it's it's a huge storyline and. You know, the, they're using it in the qualities. I mean, did, did you feel like the constituencies have had a chance to weigh in? It sounds like, well, it sounds like TV has, you, but as... Let me take you through process. Yeah, yeah, tell and, me the process. Uh, yeah, exactly. I can just, I just give, you the, give you the facts. Yeah, tell me. Uh, and then people can make their own determination. But again, I'm speaking just from the USDA side. In 2015, ESPN came to the, to the USDA leadership with a document that our board has seen, and it was recirculated in 2016, and under product innovations were shot clocks, interview between sets, on-court coaching, uh, subtitles for translation, all majors to adopt a final tiebreak set, playlets, wearable technology, um, etc. That happened in 2015. 2016, April, I arrived. In 2016, at the U.S. Open Tennis Leadership, at the U.S. Open, there was a meeting with everyone in, in tennis, ATPs, WTA, Grand Slams, ESPN, all their talent, and we went through this document again. In 2016 at the WTA Finals at a Grand Slam board meeting, for which Katrina Adams, the chairman, and Patrick Galbraith, our vice, uh, participate, uh, Gordon took through uh, the Grand Slams, the four innovations that we wanted to trial at the U.S. Open and off-court coaching was one, along with, you know, dealing with the, the unreasonable time to trying to define it, mm -hmm. the warm-up and the um, and the serve clock. Then we moved to 2017, Australian Open Grand Slam meeting happens again. Eric Buderak talked to the ATP Player Council in March. Uh, I talked to Steve Simon in March. He talked to the WTA Council. All of these communication in this timeline included in our board materials. Roland Garros Grand Slam board meeting. I was there. Uh, we talked at length with the executives of the other slams, the Grand Slam supervisors, on how we would do these 
four tests. Uh, the procedures were then written by a working group led by the Grand Sub Supervisors. The WTA was involved. In June 9th, in my board materials, it's very clear of the four and all the procedures. We did it again, same drill again at Wimbledon. This was a long, long process um, and, and well vetted. And um, uh, I'm very confident that you feel like together with Gordon through. and Katrina, that we had a good communication and a good process. Where, where do you see, I mean, you mentioned the three-point line, and I think one thing that, that I've heard from people is, you know, this, this is a real, this is a big move. I mean, this isn't, uh, let's, let's stick to a consistent bathroom break or let's call footfalls consistently, that this is, this is really uh, more of a change, and this is really... I mean, where, where, where do you, where do you in, see this um, on the continuum? It's a change in the non-team events of tennis. You know, I think if we yeah. look at, you know, we use we use coaching in in Davis Cup and Fed Cup, the Olympics, uh, World Team Tennis has used coaching for, you know, forty plus years. Uh, WTA has had on-court coaching for ten years. Um, where, where do you see this though? Cup on, on, coaching. But I mean, do you do you think this is a big deal? Do you do you think this? I mean, I don't. I don't where, where do you see this if if You'd mentioned a three-point shot, which I think, yeah, that that significant changes the spacing. That's a big deal. For yeah, look, I think for for those who are opposed to um, bringing coaching into Grand Slam tennis, then uh, for for that constituent group, it is a big deal. I can tell you that I've had discussions with those at the tours that this is a is a non-issue. We we should do it. Um, I can tell you, if the, both the WTA and the ATP Player Council were against this, it would be uh, an escalated conversation. So, again, I respect that it is a polarizing issue, that some people, you know, never accept it. I, I liken back to, you know, I think when, when the USDA brought in the big screens, Agassi didn't, didn't want to play on, on Ash with the big screens. We had to turn them off. Um, electronic line calling. I know that some of the all-time greats of our sport didn't like it, wouldn't use it. <laughs> right. And and we evolve and we change. And I think that's the fundamental. As a sport, we have to look outside. We have to look at our competition. We have to look at how we can engage younger fans with our product, still maintaining integrity, but not being afraid to adapt how we present the product to have that exciting and compelling. And, you know, I look at other sports, coaching is a big part of the story. It's a big part of the content. And I just came back from Prague, and having the, the coaches, the players involved in the coaching, it's, it's fantastic. Everybody was yearning to hear what Roger was saying. Uh, on the on the bench, uh, that's a different dimension to have a player. But, but, but yeah, but, I, mean, I think uh, I think we need to differentiate between a team wanna, event yep. and a. In, I mean, I think, yeah, at, at Davis Cup or at, at Labor Cup, where it's where it's a team style, or even college tennis, where it's team style event. I think that's much different. For, for, but I mean, the oh, the other yeah, thing, uh, I mean, what what do you think of the fact that the way it is now? It's it's the losers that are calling for the coaching, and it's the players that are in distress, and the players are trailing, and so you're not getting. I mean, it might be it might be good content for fans. I mean, it might be sort of good social media content, but it rarely is positive, right? You you don't see tweets, and you don't see viral videos of, 
hey, you're doing great, way to stick to the game plan. It's cursing and it's sexual, you know, I mean, you you can sort of, we can do our own, uh, you know, we can do our own YouTube diving here, but uh, it's it's not moments that are necessarily painting the athletes or tennis in a positive light. What do, you, what do we do about the fact that on-court coaching the way it is now, it's the players in distress that are asking for it, so we're getting a glimpse of tennis where it's not strong, in this case, women, but it's, it's w- women that are looking for corrections, and often there are some unfortunate moments that come out of that. Well, look, um, <clears throat> I don't necessarily agree with, with that. You know, I don't consider Maria Sharapova and Simona Halep losers. No, no, but I'm um, saying when the, the mo- I mean, look at the no. moments that have traction, that are encore coaching. We're yeah, talking look, about doing this for fans and for media and for content. Yeah, and what are the moments that are fair, generating the content? We, we don't have a comparison with the guys because the guys aren't using it. You're right, right. So it will, it will. So it's 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 not a fair comparison. Uh, there are moments in coaching where there's some brilliant content. I don't care what sport it is. There are other moments that aren't the best. Uh, so, you know, that's an area that, you know, ongoing improvement with it. But we just look at, you know, the test we did during the U.S. Open qualifying uh, by the final day of, of qualies, you know, 90% of the athletes were using coaching, men and women. Um, so um, we'll never know. But what we do know is an individual sport like golf. Right. The, the caddy is there guiding the athlete. The boxer comes to to his corner and he's got a couple of minutes with his coach his trainer at the end of the day and i take my guidance from from the fans from commercial partners who are in the business of helping us sell our sport uh and from from other past champions it's still mono mono the athlete still has to hit the serve they still have to hit that forehand when they need it on the big points um and so with all of that, and it's, you know, it's voluntary. We're not imposing it on anybody. You know, don't right, use it. Right. Uh, but I do think younger generations adapt to how they play the game. And if coaching was used at Grand Slams on a consistent basis, I think we would see an overall improvement. And, then, hey, I'm looking forward now to the next test that the ATP will do at the next generation. In, in Milan. In Milan. Right, right, yeah. right. What, what, I mean, Mar- Mary Carrillo, who hates this even more than I do, um, asked, asked Gordon <laughs> yeah, about this. And uh, yeah. he, his response was, you know, I, mean, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but basically we're, we're legalizing what everyone's doing anyway and sort of acknowledge we had this problem of gesticulating and these gestures and, and these sort of surreptitious signs, and now we're, we're legalizing it. Um, that That's not a response that, mentions fans or uh, television partners. I mean, do, do you think that's part of this, that we have this issue where we, we all see it and we all hear the rumors and we all have seen people sort of caught in, caught in the act? You think that's part of this, that we've, we've had an issue for a while now of, of coaches coaching and giving signals during matches and this is a way to put it out in the open? Yeah. Well, look, I'll, I'll, I'll go back in the storyline of you know, 2005, sitting with ESPN, Producers, directors, talent. How do we engage fans? And on-court coaching was on the docket back then. So the storyline, and for me, it's always it's always about the fans and how we grow it. For certain, when we talk about coaching, 
there is an element that it is happening. So if it is happening, then why don't we include it as part of the show in uh, a formal way, in a controlled way, rather than the way it's currently being done today? So that's, you know, I think that's you know, ultimately what Gordon was, was saying uh, during that interview. Where, uh, where, where do you see this going from here? Well, look, we, um, we had a tennis leadership meeting here at the U.S. Open with both tours and the four slams. Uh, we we uh, shared with the group uh, all the results of the test, um, that we want to bring this uh, forward into the main draw of, of the U.S. Open. We would like other slams uh, to, to also um, work with us on these, these four uh, innovations that we tested. Uh, obviously, for the WTA, non-issue because they're already doing it. ATP is uh, open to it. They have their test, uh, the next gen. Um, so the next step really is uh, more discussion during the November Grand Slam board meeting uh, on, on where the other slams are netting out. And we have the ITF rules of tennis and process and, and so forth. But we've, we've made it known that we would like to bring this forward to the, into the 2018 main draw of the U.S. Open. So you think at the main draw, next, next year's U.S. Open, okay. in the main draw, we might, we might have this? That's our goal. Whether or not we get there remains to be seen. Uh, you know, this is process, this is consensus, consensus building, but uh, the organization's been at this since 2015. Yeah, just... So it hasn't happened overnight, and there's been good dialogue with both tours, and, you know, I think that's one of the reasons that Gordon brought me on, that you've got to work with the tours, you've got to work with the athletes, you've got to garner consensus and process, and not everyone's going to like it. No, um, I mean, you say people you understand know, it and have a chance. But what and, what and, evidence and is there I, that the fans I, like it? I mean, I guess that's my question. Is you know, so, what's so, that? I mean, I, I mean, I feel like the the players use it, but I feel like that's a little misleading because the players will use you know, if you said you can have three serves, yeah, sure, I'll, it's, it's a competitive advantage. Why would be crazy not to? So I think the players is a little misleading. I mean, I'm curious where, and and uh, maybe this data exists, and I don't know about it. But what what, what evidence is there that fans like this? If, if fans wanted well, this, I, I think you, we that's a completely different conversation. But where, where's the evidence that this is something that fans find appealing and would, would choose if given the option and, and they're supporting this? I think, uh, once again, we come back to <clears throat> uh, ESR partners with ESPN and other broadcasters on what we can do to make the broadcast, to make the show more engaging for fans. USTA hasn't worked in isolation. It's, oh, let's do this. Or I didn't, the WTA didn't, you know, let's do on-court coaching. Right. This is coming from leaders in the sport and entertainment industry and looking at how we, as a traditional sport that has hardly changed but that's in different our from fans, multiple decades, right? I mean, ultimately it comes from fans because fans watch, watch broadcasts. Well, I mean, they a watch, broadcast. And that's ratings. But it's all, we have fans who watch in venue fans who watch on broadcast, right. online, now in social. Um, and just, that's where we're taking our guidance from. But I, but I feel, I mean, first, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not sure ratings are going in the in a direction that uh, any of us are, are necessarily happy with. But I, but I think, you know, as someone who works in the media, I, there, there are certain advantages to, to content producers that aren't necessarily done with the consumer in mind. You know, I'm, I'm not sure. Yes, I mean, I, I'm just... I'd like more evidence that fans want this, and I'm not sure you're, you're not because ESPN wants it doesn't necessarily mean fans do, and 
you know, ESPN, like like Sports Illustrated, like Tennis Channel, we all want things we can talk about on air. We all want sort of bells and whistles that make our broadcast more special. But it doesn't necessarily, it, it's it's sort of, you know, a, a chicken and egg thing. But I'm I'm just, I, I'm not seeing the evidence, and some of this is social media, and some of this is conversation. I'm just not seeing the evidence that this is something fans want. And ESPN requesting it is, is great, but I don't know if that necessarily means that fans want it. Yeah, like I wouldn't characterize it as ESPN requesting it. ESPN is a partner in tennis with the WTA, right, right. Uh, with USTA and the other slams, and uh, they came with topics for consideration. And one of them, under product innovations, was on-court coaching. And they did the same. In, 20, in December of 2005, I, I started the WTA in January of 2006. So Larry Scott... Uh, the former chairman, asked me to go to this meeting in 2005. And oddly enough, I walked into the room together with Jim Curley, who at the time was with the USDA. And we sat there with leaders of the sport to, to guide us and give us guidance on how we can improve how we present the product. Because they're in the know. They're doing it 365 as the experts. Um, so they've got a good pulse on fans, on commercial relationships, and um, certainly never at a request, but as a partner to help us make tennis and keep it relevant. And as one of the tour representatives said, Stace, the reason this innovation, these four, during the qualifying was a non-event, because these are baby steps. These are nothing. Um, And what we have to do is get the players used to change, because we as a sport have to make some material changes when we look at our audience. It is gray, and it's not growing. And if we continue to just sit on these sidelines, I take right. your point. We need more data. Uh, and uh, there is, you know, old data, but and there is anecdotal, and it is a polarizing issue. But on an aggregate, uh, we think it's good content, and it's good uh, for the fans who are consuming it uh, online or on broadcast. And and at the end of the day, the nice thing about the coaching is 100% voluntary. Players can choose to use it or not. I, I take your point. We need more innovation. Yeah. What uh, You just came back from, from Labor Cup, which I think uh, I was just writing this. That the, the, same way, uh-huh. the same way Uber didn't destroy the taxi industry, the taxi industry had some flaws and uh, some... some customer relations issues, and an Uber took advantage of a, a market inefficiency. I think Labor Cup is, is doing the same. What, uh, put, putting on, putting coaching aside for a second, what, what other innovations do you okay. see so that sports, uh, that this, this sport can, can move forward? What else would you like to say? Look, I think one of the, uh, one of the great things about this past weekend at Labor Cup is every match Every point mattered, and more more exciting moments, more drama uh, needs to come into our sport. You know, there's a reason we, we got to a tiebreaker, and not just because of a broadcast. It was to bring that drama. So, and we just, and, and this is not tomorrow, but if we look at millennials and Gen Z and how they're consuming, and they want things quicker. Uh, so, what can we do? to create more intense moments on a regular basis 
uh, with our product. I think that's kind of the space. So the match tiebreak was super exciting. I know that some people don't like that because they'd say, well, why don't we just have, you know, four game sets so that we have more moments like that. There would be some that say, let's, let's uh, play the let's. Um, let's go to no ad scoring. I think at an, as an overall, and with research, I, you're 100% right. Uh, we need to to get the research. And I give my hat to, to Chris Kermode. He is doing uh, uh, the work with the ATP the in a ATP. very methodical way, testing it in X-Gen, getting some research. Uh, and that's, uh, that's, a, that's a good approach. And, um, and we'll see before we make any, you know, big, big changes. These, these are really some baby steps, to be honest, in the, in the, in the big macro uh, world that we're living in. But oh. nothing's tomorrow. I don't want anyone to feel like there's immediacy around that. But, you know, we just have to look long. And any product... And in this world of, of constant change, if you don't change and you evolve, your product dies. If you don't like uh, a number, if you don't like change, you will hate irrelevance even more. Um, exactly. But uh, so. I, I still would, I would maintain that uh, mid, whatever we're calling it, mid, mid match coaching is a uh, bigger yeah, off court coaching. We're calling it off court <laughs> coaching is a bigger material yeah. change than I no could, ad scoring or playing the let. Yeah, but at the end of the day, the athlete still has to deliver, and uh, um, you know that's that's I think what makes uh, tennis the two athletes out there, four athletes out there in dubs, um, and we just we we call them whether they're coach, the physio, the trainer, they're all part of the team, right? right. And whether it's the caddy helping the golfer, uh, or a pick me up and. Uh, one of the one of the coaches uh, engaging with their athlete, uh, you know, we think is part of the storytelling, and uh, it will create some good content at times, and other times not the same energetic content that some other things uh, might. All right, I'll give you one more. Um, okay. So, <laughs> Mar- Martina Navratilova raises point. There, there was someone who had, who had sent me a letter that uh, is how you and I got in touch, who, who made the point that they think that the you know, the, the independence that players have who don't use the coaching. So the Williams sisters, all the players before 2005, that when you have this this option to coach, it creates a certain dependence, um, maybe erodes self-confidence. And then in the majors, when you don't have that option, um, the, the players pay the price. And some of the instability that we see in the women's game um, might stem from the fact that you have this coaching option during the conventional events, and then you don't have it at the slams. And yeah. the players who don't use coaching, like Serena Williams, there's, there's a reason why she is who she is. What do you, what do you, uh, I didn't articulate that particularly well, but what do you, uh, I'm sure you've heard Martina make this point before. What do you, what do you make of that? Sure. Yeah. Well, look, I think uh, two things. One, Serena Williams is the greatest of all time. So, agreed. You know, Serena, she, <laughs> it all speaks for, um, speaks for itself. I think generally, the more we as leaders in the sport, whether it be the Grand Slams, the ATP, the WTA, the ITF, the more we could present the product and have similar product presentation and rules, the better it is for players. That's why uh, our our discussions uh, with both tours have been very positive because they do want to have the same playing conditions for their athletes at the Grand Slams 
as they do on the on the WTA and the ATP. So there's good collaboration happening. Discussions are happening. Uh, whether we can always agree on everything, I'd say that's a, a, a little a bit of utopia. But we all are working together. We all have a responsibility to really look hard at what we need to do to innovate the sport so that we can retain, but equally as important, attract more fans to the sport. Because, as you said, the numbers speak for themselves. We so, can't stand still. Exactly. Um, you know, I'm, I'm reading today about uh, apparel company and college basketball coaches facing uh, felony charges. We have our, you know... Head injuries in football. Our president is uh, mm. denouncing the NFL. Big, big, big picture. Uh, t- tennis will be okay, I think. Yes, John. We are very blessed with an unbelievable sport. Um, you know, I think we have the greatest athletes in the world. You know, we look at their their schedule, how they have to travel the globe, uh, and it just keeps getting better and better. And how lucky we were for this 2017 U.S. Open. I know a few people thought, oh, you know, a few players aren't there. Uh, and we did miss those players, but the, the players rose to the occasion, and it was magic. And we had, the, you know, one of our best U.S. Open. So uh, I love the sport, and, um, you know, equally as important, uh, I'm committed to growing the game because everything in my life professionally has come from tennis. So that's where my heart and that's where my mind is. Uh, I love the game, and I just want more kids playing the game. Oh, we we all want the same thing. Um Exactly. I, I appreciate exactly. this. See, re- reasonable people okay. can disagree. Super. Doesn't mean. Uh, oh, no, look, yeah, this it. is a, this is a polarizing one, and and uh, I just think uh, we don't take anything lightly, and ultimately, from a strategy perspective, it is it is about the fans and making tennis relevant and and keeping this great product uh, moving forward. But next next year, twenty eighteen U.S. Open, you think? Uh, well, all all goes that's as planned. Goal. That's 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 our goal. So we'll stay tuned. Um. <laughs> Pleasure talking. I mean that sincerely. I mean that sincerely. That's great. Thanks. Thank you. Thank All you, John. Right. Thanks for everything that you're doing for the sport. Oh, you Appreciate as well. It. Thanks. Thanks, Stacy. Okay. Appreciate the All time. Right. Take All care. right. Cheers. All right. That was Stacy Alister again. Um, I think we left it at agree to disagree, but it was very nice of her to uh, to take the time and also reassuring that uh, two people who come down on opposite sides of an issue can have a conversation like that. We'll see if mid-match coaching is used at the U.S. Open in 2018. This will be an interesting story to follow. Again, I think the theme of both these conversations, Labor Cup, Tony Godsick, and mid-match coaching at Stacey Allister, tennis can't sit still. We're in a different era in terms of how we consume sports, how we process sports. Mobile technology is, is a big part of that. I think diminishing attention spans is is a little bit too cheap and easy, but there's no doubt that being a sports fan in, in 2017, 20. 18 is much different than it was a few years ago, much less 10 years ago. And um, I think we should be reassured that uh, tennis is, is up to the challenge, or at least is thinking in terms of how to, uh, how to adapt and innovate. Um, all right, that does it for this week. That is the Sports Illustrated Tennis Channel Tennis Podcast. As always, thanks to, uh, thanks to Jamie Lasanti, our extraordinary producer here, and uh, we will have a new guest next week. You can listen wherever podcasts are sold. Download on iTunes, Stitcher, um, SoundCloud. Keep the suggestions coming. We have a number of, uh, of, of different guests lined up for the next few weeks, but uh, always enjoy your suggestions. Have a good week, everyone. We'll do it again in seven Thank you.